man, this playlist is garbage. And I think because they can't. Garbage as in generic music or is it just songs? You- generic. Okay. More generic or like the artists that you know they would normally play. It's not, I don't know how that works of having rights and not having rights. It's not, I shouldn't say garbage, but it's it's not great. Oh no, it's garbage. <laughs> You're not going to hear anything new. We appreciate you uh, coming on, Sarah. Yeah, thanks for having me. There is a great importance in having you on today because it looks like the Brooklyn Nets are just going to win the next thousand games. I appreciate you you joining us and explaining how they've done this so far. Going up two up. Welcome to the Haber Show. I'm Tom Haberstroh. What are you doing? That's Amin El Hassan. I was like, wait, is this an intro or is, are we still casually talking? I forgot to do the intro, so that that's what that was. I felt like he was wrapping up the show there. Thank you for explaining that to us. Like, <laughs> did she? <laughs> yeah, I'm all backwards. I don't know if you know this, but Amin and I were in Miami this past weekend doing a 24-hour show. Wait, this is not the purpose of the podcast, but I want to hear all about this. And I wish I had an invite to Miami to take part in this because it looked like a blast. But I didn't fully understand what it was. It's torture. Sarah, let me just tell you something. Pat Riley, I don't know what he was on on Friday night, but he called Amin Amino Acid. As a funny new nickname or? No one knows. Pat Riley gets to do what he wants. (laughs) I like that nickname. Amino Acid. (laughs) You're going to bring it to radio next time we're on? AA. Amino acid. I'm in. I like it. No one really knows what that was about. Um, Whether he misheard Dan introducing, I mean, do you know the circumstances of what happened there? I mean, I can't remember. It's it's quite a fog. Bit of a fog. Dan was just rattling off the names of the people who were there. And I don't know why my name was the one that he decided to repeat. And it's because he knows who I am. What was the reason for using your name? Was he just acknowledging that you were there? Dan was just saying the names of people he was looking at. Why did Pat Riley repeat your name in particular? His new name, yes. Your new nickname. Has anyone ever called you Amino Acid? Yes. Oh, that's too bad. A lot, a lot, a lot. That wasn't a a first, sadly. As a kid in like high school, high school biology class? Middle school, middle school, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, that was fun. But you're going to gloss over what the purpose of the weekend was or? Well, it was the big launch of the partnership between the Dan Levitard show and some little gambling outfit. Oh, Oh, is it, is it something with a? Amino shell here. Monarch? A monarch of some sort, uh, an emperor. No, it's the kings of the Sacramento Kings. No, not those kings. <laughs> the Draft Kings. Yes, our partnership with Draft Kings, and so we uh, we wanted to start with a splash. So we thought we'd do a twenty-four hour show, and uh, you know, with different segments and different guests zooming in, uh, and part of it was raising money for charity that. Tom and and Kate Fagan spearheaded by promising to devour some of the hottest peppers known to man. Oh, did you do did you do this? Sarah, did they do it? <laughs> did I? We raised $120,000 for ALS um and we we initially said if we hit $44,444 in honor of Lou Gehrig, it was Lou Gehrig Day in baseball that week and it, Lou Gehrig's disease is ALS. And so we were wanting to do an uh, homage to Lou Gehrig. So we were like, hey, if we hit $44,444 raised on this show, 
Tom Haberstroh, myself, will eat a Carolina Reaper, which, Sarah, is the hottest pepper in the world. It is 2.2 million Scoville, which is just a measurement of, of heat, okay? A jalapeno, a standard jalapeno, Sarah, is 8,000 Scoville. This is 2.2 million. 0.2 million. Oh, dear Lord. And you're still here. Kind of. You're alive? Your stomach exists? Kind of. So I'm wondering, do you like spicy food? I love spicy food. I love spicy food. I love it. it, it yeah, I was at first when you were starting to tell the story, going to say I would be all in on that because I always take all bets that involve hot food, spicy oh, food, peppers. No worry. <laughs> That's my jam. And then when you broke it down by Scoville, yep, by the numbers, Scoville. I have not ever heard of that. Oh, uh, see, maybe, maybe I'm glad. Maybe I'm glad I didn't partake. Maybe you're not up on this spiciness like no, you thought. Maybe, no, maybe, no. Maybe you're just G-League with your spice. I, I, I am. I am a G-League on that. G-League, take me back. So so when you when you go to the store and you get a salsa or when you get chicken wings or when you go to a Thai restaurant. Oh, I make my own. I make, I make my own salsa. Come on now. Okay. From scratch. Let's hear it. You want to be able to spice it up, you know, in your own. But I, but I would say hot. I would get hot. I like hot sauce. Okay. Now, now give me your recipe. I got to hear, Sarah, your recipe for your salsa. What do you do? I keep it very simple. Like you just get some jalapenos, habaneros, cilantro, dice up the, the tomatoes and you put it in the little blender thing, pepper, some garlic powder, lime juice. You can dice up some some onions or scallions. That's kind of it. See, I'm just lazy. I just go to the store and, and find the hot one and then I bring it home. Is there a certain brand? The Tostitos. <laughs> There's something about Tostitos brand that I really like. It's the sodium content. It's almost like tomato sauce. So I go with the Chipotle or any any sort of smoked tomato I'm all about. I love like a, a charred oh, tomato, smoked. smoky tomato. That's why I go with the Chipotle salsa. Um, I'm a sucker for anything like smoked in any in any capacity. Like I'll I'll be that I'll be that asshole at the bar who's like, oh look at this, a smoked uh, a smoked old fashioned. Yes, please. And they like bring out the the wood and they and they put like this orb on top of the wood and they light the wood on fire and they put the cocktail inside and then they make the bur- the the cocktail. That's me. That's that guy. There's an extraordinary place in charlotte and i'm remiss because i cannot remember the name of it but it's some downstairs but are you familiar with this yes where their thing it's like a downstairs loungy but but their whole thing is these smoky drinks that look very elaborate i'm simple i don't like a lot i, I don't like a lot to go along with with what I'm drinking, but it's, um, if you're looking for a smoky place, head on down to Charlotte, find you the name. I believe it's the cellar at Duckworth's. Is that possible? The cellar? Oh yeah, totally. You nailed it. Yeah. I live in Charlotte. Wow. Sarah, so this is, this is, yeah, I don't know. Oh, God. Yeah. You should have <laughs> kept that going, Tom. Just have her believe it. Like Tom is this wizard <laughs> with hole in the wall places all across the country. I did not realize you lived in Charlotte. Wow. The irony. That's one of Rich Cho's favorite spots is the cellar. Yeah. Uh, Rich Cho, any recommendation that he has or, or favorite he has is a good one. Sarah, you, you, you've done your fair share of traveling covering this game. Who is the top foodie in the NBA in terms of that Rich Cho level of like knowing the hole in the wall spots and all the different things in all the different cities? I don't have a ranking, but what I will say is when we would travel, and, and this may come as a surprise to you, Joe Harris really? is one of the biggest foodies. Like any city we would go to, 
um, even here in New York, you ask Joe what the spot is and he would have a whole plethora of suggestions, different cuisines. Uh, yeah, he's, he is way on it when it comes to, um, when it comes to, to spots to go to. And obviously we're all in the same, we used to be, and hopefully we yeah, will be again, will but the same, yes. same, same routine of, of cities and where you'd go. So yeah, he would, he would always have all the spots. And they would be extraordinary. Tom, who who would your pick be? And you can't say Kevin Arnovitz because he is your. Oh well, that's my answer. That's my answer. Arnovitz. Arnovitz has like a whole encyclopedia. Like every city has a spreadsheet. Basically, every city he's got um, by by like category. He's got it all figured out. Is he selling this? <laughs> he should make a little side change off of this. Well, funny you mentioned that, Sarah. That's an idea. I would buy it. I do a pod, a food podcast with Kevin Arnovitz. Uh, it's called. Pack your knives. It's we recap Top Chef, our favorite show on TV, and we do every episode. We recap it, and it's live right now. The show is live, and Kevin and I uh, just talk food for an hour. And let me tell you something: the next Anthony Bourdain, they're probably going to do some tryouts to try to figure out who's going to fill his shoes. No one's going to be able to do that, Sarah. But Kevin Arnovitz, I think, would be an amazing candidate to fill Anthony Bourdain's shoes as like the traveler connoisseur, foodie travel guy, guru. That's Kevin. I support it. Tom, you forgot to use the word ascertain. Oh, yes. Sorry. I got I gotta I gotta work in the word ascertain, which is a means word. Anything I could do to help help push that, I'm in for, considering I've already acknowledged I don't know where you live and I don't know the other podcasts you have. So now that I've learned all this great information about you, um Pack your knives. Oh, I'm in. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's part of the Count the Dings Network, and Amin has been pumping his mo- terrible movie podcast. Cinephobe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not playing favorites here, but I do know about Cinephobe. <laughs> uh, someone, someone's done a radio show with me. <laughs> oh, man. Good times. Miami. So we, who do we get NBA wise? We got Rasheed Wallace on the show. We got Pat Riley, Chris Mullen. Yeah, Chris Mullen ate a pepper. Shane Battier and struggled mightily. Did he really? Shane Battier ate a pepper and then pledged five grand to the ALS uh, pepper challenge. So, oh, he. You know what? I can excuse the whole Duke Blue Devil thing when it comes to this. Like, I can separate that. I can compartmentalize the whole Duke. Wait, you went to Carolina? No. If no. you look at behind me, there's Tim Duncan and Muggsy Bogues. So if you can do the math on oh. where that is. Um, yeah. 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 They don't care about you. You know You know that, right? Like Duke and Carolina, they, they don't care about you. You guys are just some little pit stop in the middle. This is how, it, I, like, I feel like Wake is like the Brooklyn Nets, where it's like the Knicks are like, Brooklyn Nets, what? <sighs> Come on. Really? Like, we're really going to care about the Brooklyn Nets? And then now it's like, oh, yeah, you should care about the Brooklyn Nets because they're they're terrorizing everybody. Is that your way of a segue? Because no. Wake is not the Brooklyn I didn't know if we were talking about the Nets in this podcast. I was really enjoying all this other, <laughs> uh, all this other catch-up. No, my hope is that Wake will have an ascension. Uh, my, like, I'm going to speak it into existence that Wake is going to have this heel turn like, like Brooklyn did. So it is a segue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Nets. How about the Nets, huh? Oh, man. I mean, amino acid. Amino acid. I ain't ashamed to say I was wrong. <laughs> Sarah, I said bu- Bucks in five over the weekend and uh, not not happy about this pick. Not looking good for me, Sarah. Wait, over the weekend. So before the series even started. So this was unrelated to the James Harden injury. You had already said Bucks in five. 
Yeah, I might have been kind of bullied into that pick. Uh, Amin and I had a little takeoff. Remember this? Remember the takeoff we had, Amin? Yeah. And you had this like long, verbose, eloquent explanation for why you were picking the Bucks in the series. And in order to win the takeoff, I I, I knew I wanted I wanted to say you got to go hotter. Yeah, I, I wanted to say the Bucks were going to win the series, Sarah, but I couldn't say that without you know changing the game a little bit. So when he went long, I went short, and I just said Bucks in five. That's it. And I won that round. Zach Harper gave me the point, I believe, in that round. I'm happy to say I wasn't quite as wrong as Tom was. Well, it helps to hit hit shots. Hey, we're only through two games, so you could potentially be off just one game. There's always that chance. Don't pack it up yet. I didn't foresee Blake Griffin outplaying Giannis Antetokounmpo. Did you, Sarah? Wow. No. I did not anticipate that. I did not anticipate that. The crazy thing too um, with Blake is that at the end of the season, he the performance was not to this level, but he was playing really well, knocking down threes, doing little things. Like so much of the stuff you talk about, just his smarts and feel and instincts for the game and switchability and you know just a variety of things of how you can position him on the floor. And then the Boston series was a drop off. And I think then there came into questions. Um, and Nash talked about it. Blake talked about it just being a bad matchup personnel-wise. Um, but just if maybe the Blake of the regular season would not translate into what you saw in the postseason and these first two games, my goodness. I mean, for as much as some of the highlight jams and dunks and follow-up, like Kevin's been phenomenal. Kyrie has been phenomenal. But Barkley Center has absolutely erupted when Blake Griffin has had some of these jets. Like in game one, every the, the tenor of the whole building shifted um, when Blake got on the floor with Bobby Portis. And it's just, it, it's been fun to watch because I think you forget that two years ago, he was all NBA. Like before he had that, that knee injury. I mean, I think we, we think about his time in Detroit of what we remember this early part of this season or him being hurt, but you forget he had that year where he drags into the playoffs. And that's when he was, he was defending Giannis Sabah. I mean, he was kind of on one leg, but he was, he was matched up against Giannis Bunch. He did decent against him. So I think, um, you know, just his level of confidence and experience is something that has made a major difference. Has he talked about that experience at all with you guys? Or has he just kind of said, hey, that's the past and I don't want to get into it? No, I'm trying to I'm trying to think. Um, certainly he is not throughout the course of the postseason. But I think just coming here, like what what he talked about most was just identifying, obviously wanting an opportunity to compete for a title, feeling like this was a good fit, familiarity with, you know, players on this roster. Um but he talked about identifying areas that he felt like he could be useful to this team. And in some of it has been his, you know, passing ability at that position. Some of it has been a level of physicality, um, feel for the game, but like the, the small details of the game. Um, I mean, he's hit the ground more than any player, like since he came here, he's hit the ground. I mean, it's, it's been, it's been fun to watch. And, and he was with Bruce Brown, you know, in Detroit and they've had a really nice chemistry together, um, but I think more than anything with this team, and, and again, you'll continue to see like it's two games. You don't want to entirely get ahead of yourself, but I think top to bottom with this group you've seen through the whole year, they're all really smart. I mean, it may be an overused term talking about basketball IQ. It is a really, really smart team. So when you think about defensively picking up 
what they're doing, the communication rotations, even offensively, some of the improvisation that they use and how free flowing the offense is, but understanding spacing and balance. Um, I think a lot of that stems that everyone on the floor are just really, really smart basketball players that have good instincts. Yeah, sir, you played at DePaul. And I remember when I was playing through high school, I'm very bad at basketball. I, I tapped out in high school. But the the fun that you have when you play with like four other players that know how to play basketball and know you and know like the basketball IQ, everyone's on the same uh, page. I think that's huge for Blake. Like the Detroit system where they're, they're rebuilding and they have rookies all over the place. And then you go into this situation where you're playing with Joe Harris, Kevin Durant, uh, Kyrie Irving, and then uh, DeAndre Jordan, just veterans all over the place. That has to feel so much better. Just a relief of like, I go out there and I don't have to like teach guys how to play at the NBA level. It's probably not an apt comparison, but like think about when you go in and play pickup or you go, you know, you're going to the park and you're getting runs at what like with players that maybe have a, a lot of skill or really athletic as opposed to just you, you got a, a you got a five that you all know how to play. the the feeling of that is so different and a lot of Blake's um you know the banger endings of the plays with these comes from an action that takes place or something that's going on with maybe Kevin and Kyrie and then a cutting Joe Harris or Bruce Brown gets the middle and it's it's those quick give and go or drop passes or someone coming from the baseline but um so much of it is just the action and the movement off the basketball and when you think about the the isolation efficiency that that Kevin and Kyrie can have um these first two games there has been there has been so little of that or little of that in the sense of either it's a quick hit like at you or it's coming off movement and actions from the floor. And I think Blake has just, he's fed off that really well. Um, yeah. And just defensively, like their ability to I, the bucks in, in both of these games. And I'm curious to see if they do it more um, trying to exploit Brooklyn with their size um, they just really have not been able to do. And a lot of that has come from just the, the switching of the Nets, baiting them into maybe a little bit more um, isolation or a lack of ball movement, but just beating guys to spots. And then they're showing a ton of bodies and a lot of traffic, but they're, they always seem to be there a half second ahead of where Milwaukee is at. And, um, and it's stunted a lot of what the Bucks seem to be looking for on, on the offensive side. I wonder, Sarah, how much of, Giannis ended Acupo not attacking the rim there in game two. Um, it took, I think, midway through his second through the second quarter for him to even get into the paint and get a layup. Like, how much of that when Blake is guarding him one on one, he does such a good job, but like staying in front. But also, he's one of the top charge drawers in the NBA. And when you got Giannis, it just feels like maybe it's in his head a little bit. Not just that I can't shoot free throws, but also if I do the spin move and try to get into Blake's chest. He's going to fall and he's going to get the call. Like, I feel like that's part of this. You're so right about that. And so that goes back to the smarts of this team of knowing your personnel, knowing the, the moves, the tendencies, what they want to do. There was, you nailed it. There was a couple possessions where Giannis was going into, and you know, when he, he's got some momentum, he's got to dribble a little bit of bounce as, as he's looking to attack. But you could tell he's about to go to his, you know, one dribble and a spin or one dribble reverse. Um, and Blake has been there. He stayed in front. He's also... It just spatially like understanding just how much room to give a guy um, where you're not giving 
a player like Giannis that runaway, but you're also, you know, up in a certain area where it, it's, it's not giving them free range at a jump shot. I think it's, it's that middle ground of trying to discern what that looks like. Um, I, I though am, I'm interested and intrigued to see what happens in game three. And I would anticipate more of that because just, just be as a observer in game one. Um, and then what I anticipated out of game two, I, I was like, oh man, they're going to get to the, they're going to get the front of the rim a ton more. Like Drew has got to get there. And I, yeah, I guarantee Giannis will and put more pressure on. I mean, the fact they only shot nine free throw attempts and Giannis and his brother were the only ones who took a, <laughs> yeah. but, but like that to me tells you, you got, how, how are you not doing more to, to, to try and get inside? Um, so some of those, even, even utilizing Brooke Lopez with that a little bit more, but I think that's where we look at, okay, mid game adjustments or trying to make adjustments. Um, they just take big for so long. Like, I, I don't know if then you try and match and go small because the Nets are small. And, and in some ways, the Nets are small by virtue of just their personnel and the lineups they have. Uh, but but that was very surprising to me. The Nets, though, have done a nice job, though, of just being able to, I don't even know if you call it building a wall, but just showing bodies, Blake staying in front and being very aware of anyone in that dunker spot or any where any of the cutters are coming from. Um and rebounding has been a huge factor and it's something that was an issue early on in game one, but um, an area that's been a vulnerability for the Nets through much of the regular season. And um, against this Milwaukee team, you wouldn't think it, but they, they found a way to keep them at bay. Sarah, how much stress, if any, have you noticed on the face of Steve Nash throughout this is his first go round as a head coach in the playoffs? I think it's hard to see any, anything like Steven. I mean, you know, this better than anyone. Um, one of the biggest this entire year and no matter what has happened dating back to the preseason through the year um every every team has dealt with injuries and challenges and um COVID and, and all the things so it is not unique to this Nets team he has had such a level of composure and is always measured never gets rattled um and his approach stays so consistent and that it has resonated with the players in, um, I think such just a significant way. And even through the course of the playoffs, um, you know, in, in the start of it with the Boston series and now these first two games, like there, there was never a too high or too low. Um, and I guess more in this case, thus far too high than not an overreaction. Like it, it is a very, um, it is a very poised nature of, we need to get better. There were areas to improve, we're at this point, but X, Y, and Z, these, these are the things that, that we're focused on. Um, and to a man, every player has just talked about how much his character, his mentality, they obviously have a ton of respect for him in who he was as a player. Um, but how he's used such incredible judgment of the things that he should be a little looser on and allow the players to figure out, to problem solve, to, to work out for themselves when he needs to insert his opinions. I think he's very honest and open. He's, so humble, but so open to say, I know what I know. I know what I don't know. I know what I'm willing to ask opinions and be open for, but I'm he also has shown a level of when he thinks something, believes something and you know, it's decision, his decision to make. Um, he is very much step to, you know, step to the plate with the confidence of, of whatever that he's doing in and, and can't say enough about that. The, the bummer of, um, 
one of the many of the pandemic and us not being around the team quite as much, the coaching staff, sometimes you get a better feel and practices or, you know, when you're around them, um, who exactly is doing what and some of the way things are split up, but to have, you know, Mike D'Antoni and Jacques Vaughn and Yime Yudoka and you go down the list on the staff, but just how well they've been able to collaborate and work together, um, I'm sure Steve would be the first person to say that, that that also has been a large part of just how he's been able to have such a great comfort level. Well, Kyrie said it earlier this season. He's not the head coach. It's just going to be anybody who walks in. Yeah, it's everybody. It's also going to change the way we see coaches. I don't really see us having a head coach. You know what I mean? Like, I, KD could be a head coach. I could be a head coach. Jacques Vaughn could do it one day. It could, it could be – it can be – it's a collaborative effort, I think, on our part. That feels like seven years ago, by the way. It does. That's like a lifetime ago. Are we going to see James Harden in this series in, from your perspective, Sarah? I have no inside information. I wish I could bring it to you. There's uh, d- My gut says, I, depending on how long it goes or what it looks like. Well, it's bucks and five, so you, that's that's what it's going to be. That's mathematically that's mathematically impossible at this point. Uh, <sighs> no, but I, I think just watching, watching – um, one where my where uh, mine and Michael Grady, uh, my counterpart with yes, as we were doing the pre and post game show yesterday, where our seats were, it was directly behind. It was right at the baseline, so essentially right behind where James Harden was sitting um, on the bench. Now that's with with the spatial yeah. chairs of COVID, there's some on the bench as we know it on the sideline, and then there's chairs set up along the baseline. Um, but to see how you know well he's moving, to know just how much he has been durable throughout the course of his career and wanting to be on the floor. Um, but you imagine there'll be a high level of, of caution, just the big picture of his career or even just the long run of potentially uh, the postseason. But I would imagine if this series extends again, just my, my thought maybe more of a optimistic thought that you would. Um, but, but he's a factor. And then Jeff Breen too, like he's someone that. Uh, we all thought was going to be a really significant um, and is the significant piece that he played with this team and especially in the front court and his ability to guard multiple positions, someone that you would guess would have spent a good amount of time on Giannis. Um, So I'm not sure where he's at, how far he is off. Uh, But yeah, but I think a lot of it depends. I think there's much more of a cushion that when you win the first two games, maybe a little bit more of a cushion um, of how much you're going to push that and how much rests in the performance staff versus the player. Especially when you win the first two games the way you've won them. These weren't nip and tuck wins. I mean, that game one, game one is a little misleading. They would, you guys were up 17 or something with about three minutes to go in that game. It was pretty much over. The Bucks made a little run to make it look respectable. And then last game, I mean, I got one of those uh, charts that shows the lead. And it literally never spiked back. It just went down, 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 down towards the nets. And never, ever once did the Bucks make a run or anything to kind of say, oh, well, it's a little bit of a game. And no, now the nets respond. How surprised are you at, I guess, the lack of adjustment from the Bucks from game one to game two? Very surprised. And that's what I was most, as we all are, just fans of basketball and enjoyed, you know, what the postseason means and the adjustments that happen throughout the course of a series. Um, that's what I was most curious to see because you think about going into game one, Milwaukee sweeps the heat. They have an entire week to prepare for what would be seeing the big three. Um, and it would be the first time that James and Kevin and Kyrie would face the Bucks this season. There was a little, there was a little mini series, um, a two gamer towards the final stretch of the season 
that Milwaukee won both games. James Harden did not play. And a lot of what we had seen throughout the course of the year that I know is talked about uh, with Milwaukee and, and Coach Budenholzer and just the concept of them trying new things and switching more and, um, you know, a, a variety of areas. They didn't do a lot of that. So in those two games against Brooklyn, they went back to a lot of what they were doing now, dr- drop coverage, um, you know, staying home, forcing, you know, just the Nets to play against whoever they were matched up against. And so you saw a lot of that. But again, James Harden doesn't win Milwaukee. Um, Milwaukee takes both those games. So whole weeks to prepare. James goes out in the first minute. And so some of it of what we saw, and there wasn't a whole lot of switching taking place, uh, Blake Griffin, that's where he's knocking down those shots as, as Lopez was dropped back. A lot of it, you think, okay, they, you know, they kind of had their game plan set. This was a, a, a quirk that the Nets were able to adjust to a little bit better. How will they change things here with a day in between? Um, and there wasn't a whole lot that change. I mean, they even went to a zone. Like they went to a zone in the second quarter just to try something. And I think they did it the first possession out of the second half. Joe Harris had a three and it was just like, I, I, there's not a whole lot of answers. I understand against um, in some ways against this Brooklyn team when they're playing this way offensively, but more of it, like trying to score defensively. I mean, it, Milwaukee needs to find ways to score and they were getting no easy baskets. Uh, they weren't creating turnovers. They're not getting runouts, which is an area they weren't getting as many second chance points. So um, no, a, a lot of it was very much the same. And, and Giannis just looked, you know, Giannis looked very similar to what we saw in the last few postseasons in some regards of just, you know, seeming like he, he was out on an Island or it was trying to create things and couldn't. So I, I'm curious to see what changes um, in terms of lineup, if they go a little smaller, if they change the starting lineup, just, you know, I know Dante DiVincenzo's loss for them, you know, they felt like that was significant, but I, I'm not sure what exactly you do, but um, I would assume that in game three, there'd be something to change up because granted it's only two wins um, and you don't want to get ahead of yourself or overreact to those two wins. But on the same token, you, you're down by 49 points you know, in what in one point in the game, like you, you got to find a way to, to at least show something different. When I watch, I noticed that the drop coverage against Kevin Durant and a lot of the pick and rolls, uh, KD was just, he was surgical. Like he would pull up from a, a jumper or he would just do a little pocket pass to Bruce and then Bruce would just dump it over to, uh, to Blake for the dunk. And it was like, you're either giving up Kyrie or Kevin Durant, a mid-range jumper or a three-pointer, right? Two of the best shooters in both of those areas in the league. Or they're just, Kevin Durant is just so comfortable in playing that ball handler to pick apart the defense. And they're just not giving any sort of pressure on them. And it just seems like KD looks as comfortable as ever. I mean, the the double heavy (laughs) on on Giannis. Uh. I haven't seen Giannis being torched like this I mean, I know last year with the Heat, but like this year, this game, especially game two, he just seemed totally out of it. That was the stuff. And I'm sure, you know, Kevin, I, I'm not kidding you. The the beginning of the game and early on and some of the, the buckets that, that Kevin and Kyrie were getting, it felt like, I mean, it felt like they could do anything against anyone. And I'm sure... Kevin had heard for a long time how Bucks get PJ Tucker to try and slow him down. And he's a guy that can guard Durant and it has been the exact opposite. He picked up two quick fouls and see ya, it was done. And like trying to be physical with him and try. And that's where I think, you know, for as much as you think about Kevin's shot, like he's been tight with his handles. He has been strong uh, getting to his spots. 
but yeah, but it's the movement around that. And, and that's where you wonder with the, but like the, the lack of any switching or playing big or some of those areas, um, you know, that they certainly have not been able to exploit that advantage. Um, you know, do they change that up? I, I don't know. I don't know. But again, you imagine at some point and, and more of it to me too, um, when you in one of you two brought this up, just, I mean, you with the, with the leads, um, and the lack of it throughout the course of game two, I kept wondering, okay, when are, when's Milwaukee going to make a run at some point, they're going to make a run at some point, not necessarily make it into a a, a 10 point game, but just make a little, a little blip, but we're doing better than they are. Yeah. Start making some shots, get some stops, force, you know, whatever you're doing on one end of the floor. Um, and there was none of that. And to me, it was just a, it, it was a team that was like, we, we want to mentally break you. We know what's in your head, maybe in the back of your mind of what's happened in the past. And they consistently just every single time up the court, um, how they played and how they were playing together. It was something that I did not anticipate. I mean, it, it was definitely a peak performance top to bottom with the whole roster. Um, but we talk so much about in the postseason players and teams that can go up a level. Uh, and, and that's what I think you're seeing out of this Brooklyn team, at least, you know, in these first two games of the series of all these players have some level of postseason experience, championship pedigree of Durant and Kyrie, um, but others to go along with it, that everyone has just elevated their level of play. I mean, how much of this series is just Brooklyn has 36 threes. So and on that Milwaukee note, has- I'm glad that you brought that up. I'm looking, I've, I've got the numbers here. I did my uh, Ryan Gumble took notes. White people love Wayne Brady because he makes Brian Gumble look like Malcolm X. In game one, on three-pointers that NBA.com's optical stat tracking uh, cameras deemed to be open or wide open. That is four-plus four feet of space between the shooter and the next closest defender. Milwaukee shot six of 26 from three. Not good. You said wide open? Open or wide open. Open is four to six. Uh, wide open is six-plus, right? Six of 26 in game one, six of 23 in game two. This is from a team that in the regular season shot 39% from three on all types of threes. Contested, uncontested, heaves from the end of the court, heaves at the end of the shot clock. Uh, How much of that can we attribute to the Nets' defense? Not Obviously not much in terms of them shooting wide open ones, but the reality is, I believe they shot thirty three pointers in game one and twenty seven in game yeah. two. That's not their game. They're usually up in the high thirties in the attempts. So, how much of it is basically the defended three pointers that aren't happening are leading to a sense of pressure on the undefended ones that they are taking? It's probably a balance of both those things, but the. I mean, the quickness and the rotations and the recognition is something from Brooklyn that is it's been on point and that we haven't seen to to this level throughout the course of the regular season. They were bottom nine defense in the regular season, and now they look like they're just they're crisp. Like I said, I, I was wrong. It's the main stage. It's the main stage. Um, and this 
is against like that's you can't, this is against a Milwaukee team that led the league in scoring the regular season. Like I mean said, they were third in field goal percentage, fifth in three point. Like this isn't this isn't a team that typically struggles to score. Um, I mean, I think it's a balance of that, of just not having those open looks and the clean looks. I also think they haven't gotten in game one. They had 70. So you may have in your, in your little notepad, the gumble pad, mm-hmm. the paint points, but they haven't gotten as loose in, especially that comes back to Giannis in, in we're talking about maybe his lack of, of getting to the front of the cup or the penetration, but like they haven't loosened up the interior of the defense enough also um, to not be able to get out and cover those threes. And so I don't know how much that factors in the give and take of it. Uh, but it's certainly, I mean, you come out of game one, I think Milwaukee came out of game one saying we shot 20% from three. There's no way that, that drew and Chris are going to have uh, shooting performances in terms of efficiency like that. Again, there were so many things. So, so I think their attitude was, well, we're going to make more threes and there's other areas we can clean up. We didn't play well. It's one game. Um, you know, we struggled in that first game against Miami, but this is a more talented team. You know, we're still able to beat that, that heat team in game one, but now we'll respond. And, and I thought that, like, I thought the Bucks were going to come out just loaded. Um, and I think on the flip side of things, Brooklyn looked at it and both Kyrie and Kevin, like you look at their numbers from game one, they didn't shoot all that well. And I think there was areas they thought, oh, we could be better. Um, so the fact that Milwaukee again from three shot, what, under 30%, uh, I do think part of it's defense and uh, for the Nets, their biggest issues defensively throughout the year were stem from turning the basketball over and giving up easy, easy points. So some of that was the second chance points because they were not a, a very good rebounding team. Um, but a lot of it was just turnovers that led to runouts, and then it, it stressed and put pressure on their defense. And they had shown in closing minutes uh, the ability to get stops when needed. And I think in the back of their mind, they always had that level of when we need to get stops or when we need to actually lock in, we can do it. And I'm not sure if that's cha- – again, like we say all this in Milwaukee could come out in game three and game four at home and – gain a level of confidence and, and just roll and look like the team we saw against Miami. But, um, but I do think the nets in, in some regard defensively, there was a part of them that always felt like when it, when it came to the playoff time and when it came to when you're putting in maximum effort and needing to be on the same page that they felt like they could get to that point and, and early in the series they have. What does the gumble pad uh, say here? I mean, on the points in the paint, I gave up. I couldn't find it. <laughs> I wish there was a place where all the numbers were all there, and I didn't have to go through like seven million different hoops to jump through. Okay, so what you want? You want total? You want totals? I got bo- all I have is in front of me is box scores. Do you want totals or game two or game one? Let's go game by game. Game one points in the paint. The Bucks had seventy-two to the Nets forty-eight. Wow. Okay. But the Bucks made just six three-pointers, and the Nets made fifteen. And they didn't get to the line. Yeah. Nets didn't get to the line. Nine free throw attempts. The Bucks had nineteen. But the possessions, the shots, Milwaukee only had three extra, and that's always been a point of emphasis for Steve Nash's coaching staff and team. Like you need to make sure that our shots are, are about the same. Game two points in the paint. The Bucks had fifty-two, so twenty less than game one and the Nets had 38. However, Milwaukee made eight threes and the Nets made 21. I would guess that much of that 52 came after halftime. 
Yep. I agree too. Yeah. They couldn't get to the cup. Like they could not get to the cup in the first half. And Chris Middleton started 0 of 8 and a lot of them were fadeaway mid-range Jays. And Giannis was trying to be KD. Like trying to be KD with some fadeaways and some three-pointers. And it was like, man, maybe he's getting caught up with the with the playoff MO that he's been – his reputation over the last couple of years. But man, it just feels like Giannis hasn't looked confident out there. I'm like, I'm sitting here. You know what I had? I had this thought, Sarah. I mean, what if he hadn't signed that Supermax and he was doing this right now? Oh, he'd still get paid. (laughs) He'd be paid a lot. He'd be paid every maximum dollar there was available. I'm just saying the conversation is kind of like, eh, like the Bucks are going to get outed again and like a big whoop. But like, if this was, if he didn't sign that Supermax, I just feel like this whole this whole uh, Giannis shooting twenty three of forty three from the line and three of twenty four from three in the postseason. I don't know. I don't know how much of a stomach both he and the Milwaukee fan base would be able to 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 handle all that. It's funny to me that we're on year three of this and they still haven't figured out he's Shaq. I'm the man of the ages, straight out the pages. Hang on, I'm contagious, outrageous. Spontaneous, you can't contain this. I am Kazam. Just play him like he's Shaq and then like eliminate all this other stuff. But like you said, him trying to do things to prove, because this is what superstars do. Give me the ball. I, just like Kevin Durant, like, no. How much of that is him? And then feeling like at what at what point is there a give and take of, of helping him with that? I mean, because think about how many times he was either out in the wing. Right. I, like dribbling and I trying to work in isolation, single coverage against like Durant or Blake or whoever, or at the top of the key trying to handle the ball. And it, it was the same circumstance. Like it was the same things you saw of like, man, help, help this kid out. I don't know. I don't know. I, I you know, I think back to the game. I want to say was Tom, was it Phoenix that they were playing against or is it Dallas? It's a game where uh, it was the end of the game and they called a timeout. And they drew up a play furiously on the clipboard. And then they come out, and the play was get it to Giannis uh, at the half-court circle. And then he drives, and he pulls up from 20 feet. And I was just like, would we ever run that play for Shaq? We would never do that for Shaq. Even if we said Shaq's getting the, the ball on the last shot, we're getting it to him six feet from the bucket. And then, he, and then it's on him to make, work his magic. Uh, and then after the game, I thought maybe it was a broken play. I would, you know, I said, nope, that's the play we wanted. And we'll do that. If we had another chance, we'd do it again the same way. And I'm like, <laughs> I-, I don't know who you're trying to be manly for. It's not impressing any of us. Whether you're Giannis, whether it's Mike Boonholzer, I don't know who's calling the shots here. I do know that there's a very defined ceiling that that team is going to keep hitting if they don't, nobody has the balls to say, fuck that. Get your ass down there. Give me the ball. I will either get you the ball, or if we can't get you the ball, we're going to have to live with me taking a shot or Chris taking a shot or Drew taking a shot or someone else who is also a pretty good basketball player taking a shot. And that doesn't make you any less of a superstar, Giannis. That doesn't make you lesser than. It just is all situational. And I don't think the – I think the Bucs are probably the worst team in the NBA, not counting the Kings, the worst team in the NBA at recognizing – situations and recognizing different situations require different types of actions. Yeah. I was waiting for them at some point last game. And again, it it got out of hand quick to your original question. I've got my first half box score. Wow. 
Sarah, just crushing it over there. 22 points in the paint at the half for Milwaukee. 30 after halftime. 30 after the game was already over. And at that point, they'd only taken two free throws. And so at some point, I thought, would they put Giannis at the five? Like, go small. You're playing against a a smaller lineup for, I mean, you got Bruce Brown, 6'4", Bruce Brown, essentially playing center. Again, like, at it, it, what point... Um, if you are not pounding the ball into Brooke Lopez or a Bobby Portis, it's not crushing you on the offensive glass or stretch it out a team. Like at what point do you try and say, Oh, let's, let's try and go small and put you out the five and see you work some pick and rolls with drew or with Chris or whatever. And not, um, so I don't know. And I don't know how much, and I love Giannis. Um, I, I don't know how much it factors in this, the, the struggles he has from the free throw line not getting like to me he's someone who and I, I don't know what his I should have a somewhere but what is not like how is he not taking 10 12 14 free throws regardless of what he shoots I wanted to know Sarah what was the crowd like when he went to the line oh it was every time so game one on the on the scoreboard there was a clock of which he violated the 10 seconds every time every time same with the heat every single time well you know what i i'm no i am not the person to to make suggestions well for and then game two that there was not the the clock on the scoreboard when he was shooting uh but the crowd was it was going nuts i like there's part of me just myself as a as a player of free throw i i did not struggle from the free throw line um but if i did or if you're going through a thing like no i'm teasing i'm messing uh, but he he so he waits to get the catch like he waits he he waits for the ball so he tells the official to so gets there bends his knees and then he takes i'm like the last thing you need is extra time thinking like to me it's it's this may not be working so why don't you try getting in, loosen up your knees, bending, catching it and shooting. Like just make it quick, change, change something up. Um, because the crowd just gets more and more amped up by that. And I can only imagine how much that just gets into your head. I mean, it gives you an extra 15 seconds to be thinking about this before you get the ball while you're waiting. And, and again, if it's not, if it's not helping you like switch it up a little bit, but who am I? The thing that's fascinating to me is, how long those free throws take, even before he gets the ball. Like you said, he tells the official every single time to hold up. I need to step into my free throw routine and then I'm ready. Okay. And then he's a 40% free throw shooter. So like when I, when I watch it, I'm just, I'm, I'm flabbergasted that he continues to let that, that time to just think about things. And I know there's all the stats and analytics about how if you take a, a, uh, your second shot on average, you make more than your first free throw, right? Because I think there is some sort of muscle memory. Steve Nash did all the time um, of, of pretending to take the, you know, doing a practice shot before you actually get the shot. But for me, um, I think it must be in his head at this point is the, the 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 fact that he doesn't want to get to the free throw line he went two for seven in the in this game I think from the free throw line I I just think it gets in his head and I I I saw this meme the other uh, last night maybe it was Juju Gotti I mean I think posted on Lebetard show it on their Twitter that said life on the line who do you want taking a free yeah. throw Giannis <laughs> or Ben Simmons or Ben Simmons and my answer <laughs> is Giannis because he takes longer so I have an extended lifetime. 
So like Giannis gets to the free throw and I've got an extra 30 seconds to like live out my life if, if it if it doesn't work out. Until you die. That's right. Because Giannis oh. takes, I swear to you, like if they did a, a, a timer on Giannis Antetokounmpo's free throws, it's – it's like at least six minutes of game of real time when he when the foul call is made and then the ball goes live. It is crazy how long it takes. The thing that's again just appreciating the game, looking at the talent that Giannis is and can be. If it if it's in any way altering how you're playing or how you're attacking a defense or what you're able to do because you don't have the confidence on the line, like that's where to be. It just it, it becomes a problem because if you are not playing in the same way enough, a defense recognizes, oh, he's a, like how Blake may feel on the defense bend and what he could do or where he could be. Um, or what spots he's at because he thinks that there is an element in Giannis's head that he doesn't want to get fouled or he doesn't want to potentially put himself in that position quite as much, uh, whether consciously or, or subconsciously. Like that's where you know it it changes what the team can do or how the team is playing and functioning offensively. I mean, you were around Shaq a lot with his free throw stuff. Like, do you have any stories of? in practice any sort of like tricks or mental games that he would play or any other any other player that you were around that um really struggled in game but had like little games that he would play to try to get himself out of it Shaq was amazing in in practice he shot like 85% from free like it was, for him it was purely mental and this is how mental it was when Shaq would shoot in practice he would have a completely different form he would look like a regular like a regular person shooting and then when he get in a game, he start doing this thing where the ball sits like right here, and he'd lean forward precariously, almost try to get as close as possible via reach to just like drop it in the basket. And you know, it was a thing where it's like he would shoot and he'd make or miss, he would turn and he'd look at the bench, like looking for approval. Did, did I shoot that right? Should I da 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 like? And so finally we got him to a place and said, look, big fella, every time you get fouled, two things are happening. You're getting individuals in foul trouble. So there's less of them on the floor, you know, or less minutes they can play on the floor. But also you're getting them in foul trouble as a team. So, you know, we're at the eight-minute mark of the quarter. Steve Nash got aggressively hand-checked 50 feet away, bringing the ball up. He's shooting two free throws. He's the the, the – Number one free You're throw helping shooter. the team make or yeah. miss whether the number yeah. one free throw shooter in the history of the NBA is now getting two free throws for just bringing the ball up. Yep. And so, and we had a lot of players who were good free throw shooters. Jason Richardson was a good free throw shooter. And Amari Stoudemire was, and and uh, Leandro Barbosa, and, and all these guys. So for us, it was like shoot forty free throws, even if you fifty percent. First of all, that's twenty points. We'll take twenty points, but also it's all the other stuff that we're doing here that we're getting to the free throw line and make, make those points up that you may be missing at the free throw line. And once that pressure was removed from him, I think it might have been like one of his highest free throw shooting years uh, since like his early year. Because it, and it like Shaq's one of those guys where his rookie season, he shot 59% from the free throw line. Not great, but also like salvageable, I would say, for someone who shot nine free throws. And then he goes like into this depths of 48, 52s, 54s, until he gets to Phoenix, and he got back up to almost 60%, so 59.5, which is the second highest of his career, I believe. Yeah, after the uh, one of those years in L.A., he shot 62% for some reason. But anyways, 
The point is, when we remove the pressure from him, he shot a lot better because he was like, oh, they're not counting on me to make these free throws and no one's going to be disappointed or groan when I miss them or whatever. I don't know what Giannis's, you know, practice uh, like accuracy is. I don't know. If, basically, I'm saying I don't know if he's just a bad free throw shooter or if he's like Shaq, where there might be some sports psychology going on to it. But either way, like I would, I would still like, hey man, you got, you have to get to the free throw line. I, I, I don't care what you're shooting. You have to get there because you getting there a gets their bigs out of there, and we know they're already a small team. And then, B, Drew's excellent. Chris is excellent. Brent Forbes is excellent. All these guys are excellent free throw shooters. Give them the chance to get there for for doing nothing because I cut too hard, right? Because the guy was aggressive on an inbound. Because, uh, like, you know, someone was grabbing on me while I was trying to set a screen. Like All of these are are ways that we're going to get to a place where we're going to score points efficiently based on you just putting them in foul trouble. Yeah, DeAndre Jordan, 68% last year with Brooklyn. And it felt like it was like, I never thought I'd see the day that DeAndre Jordan would be an almost 70% free throw shooter. He changed something. I should remember this having him come up, but he changed something where he like said something before he got the ball, he turned. And I don't think he was actually even saying anything real, but to one of his teammates that was in the lane, like said something. And sometimes it would be no one standing there, but that, that was his, whatever his routine was, it was turn, say something, catch the ball, look and shoot. And it was, um, it worked for him and it was going well. And that like, it's one of the biggest aspects of, you know, the game that it's a mental thing because at no other time are you just standing there where you're alone on the line with time and you have time to think about it. So I don't know. But uh, but for Giannis, watching him, and there was even a handful of plays last night that it's like, man, he instead of like it, he could have just kept going straight line drive, get to the basket, and instead it's a, a stop, a reverse, um, a pull up, and it's like you you got size, you got strength, you got length, like this, go to the cup and see what happens. But maybe game three. Part of my bucks and five pick was about how. Bucks defense, way better than the Boston Celtics defense. And secondly, James Harden's injury concerns, and this is retrospect, obviously on point. They haven't needed him. They haven't needed him at all to just be torching Giannis and the rest of the Bucks. And it, it's on both ends of the floor that Brooklyn is just outplaying them. But it's amazing that we're we're sitting here and, and thinking about adjustments, but they, they haven't even needed James Harden, which is scary for the rest of the league. Yeah. To think about Mike James is your backup point guard. Was Mike James – I mean, you weren't with Phoenix no. when he spent a couple games there, right? No, he wasn't, but one of my good buddies was uh, – was his his workout guy but it it goes down the list of like this roster and because it's it's been yes kevin and Kyrie, but joe harris what what blake has done brute like nicholas claxton has come in and had great minutes there is just a steady level of confidence and everyone like everyone knows their roles everyone knows exactly what they're supposed to do on the offensive end the defensive end what their role is They've known this through the year. Like this is also a, when you think about adversity and losing someone like Harden or even Jeff Green, this is the Nets have dealt with that. They feel like for better or worse, they've dealt with Kevin and Kyrie and James or different players being in and out of the lineup through the year. So to them, 
everyone has such a clear, and this is what goes back to Nash and the coaching staff, which give them credit for this because they're such a huge part of it. And the buy-in, every player knows exactly what they're supposed to do, what their role is, how to play within themselves. Um, And that's, to me, that was so evident in, in game two. Isn't it funny though, yo, how many people remember Joe Harris was a Cleveland Cavalier? <laughs> like, hey, this isn't his first time playing with Kyrie. And so like it feels like a hundred years ago, but like I, I I truly think a lot of people think he's just been a net for his entire career. I mean to think about that, because he was traded uh, what to Orlando, not really, but kinda, then waved, um, because he was injured. He had a wrist injury, but and to watch what he's like, he's another player, and you can look at the nuances of all this, but Obviously, a three-point shooter that they're going to run off the line. He was so aggressive putting the ball on the floor and getting to the basket last night. Like, that, out of the gates, he was taking shots and getting to the middle of the floor and making plays that he has become such a complete play. And even someone who's done a job on the defensive. Like, he know he knows where to be. He knows how to stay in front. Uh, Landry Shamit's kind of – like, guys that you would think would be targets on the defensive end – they're they're just in the right space, the right place, and there's been a, a heavy dose of other guys helping. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it the first two games have been impressive, but again, it's still it, it could potentially be a long series if Milwaukee looks like the Milwaukee that we saw against Miami. There was that one play where it was a dead ball, Kyrie like full court pass to to Joe Harris in the corner because Giannis just slept. Giannis just did not pay attention and then Joe Harris put the ball on the deck and went right at the rim and did a reverse layup and it was like yeah Kyle Korver's not doing that you know like JJ Redick not doing that Joe Harris is is a much more dynamic player than just a spot up shooter who can shoot lights out so um another and then the 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 Kyrie the pull up where he just stops on a dime in transition and Giannis just falls over and then Kyrie hits the three like bam like I man, Giannis just got absolutely scorched in that one. It was nuts. Yeah, Kyrie has some of the best breaks in the business, but um, that's also the element of like a Kyrie and a Kevin when the crowd is going and having fans back in the back. I mean, it went so long that it was crazy to not have fans in arenas or around playing. And then I almost think it flipped to the other side of like then when fans were first in a like I'll never forget Game One against Boston. And the Nets looked horrible in the first half. And Harden, and I think maybe Durant, almost every player, Jeff Grant, they said it was it was crazy to have the building full. That they, they he, threw they, them off? Yes. Like, it was almost so awkward that it threw us off. <laughs> and James was the first to say, he sat down at the postseason, and he was like, I'm not going to lie, having a full building, like, it was so bizarre and awkward that it took us a minute to get adjusted to it and get used to it. Um, but now that I think there has been, you know, I've been in Boston and been here and all teams have been now, I think it's like the the showmanship and just the, Oh, we get, to, we get to put on a show for these fans. Like we have been waiting so long for the postseason to come. We have been waiting so long to finally like be in this building with fans. Cause you think, I mean, it was the bubble last year, um, but Kevin and, and Kyrie did not play, but Kevin was injured all of last year. Kyrie only um, played in 20 games. So this this has been a steady buildup. And throughout the better part, there was no fans until I think about January, February. I should know this exactly, but it started with a couple hundred fans and it, it elevated. But through the last month or so of the season, the, the max was about 1,700 fans. So to go from 1,700 
to close to 17,000. And like now it's, it's the time that matters. Um, I think that additionally has just been like, whoa, this is like, this is what we, this is part of what we play for to, to be able to put on a show for these fans in our home court. How has it been different for you doing your job, having fans in the building? That's been great. It's been great having fans back. I mean, I, I do think the the position. So where we so we had with yes network we were yes network we were still calling games um, in the first round. Now it's just uh, pre and post game shows. Um, but our position, obviously, I mean, we used to be you know at court side center court, you know, right next to between the benches. Um, so obviously, the dynamic is so different when. Um, when you're you're up a bit higher and you're not as close to the action, and then for road games, calling off a monitor, um, you know, it's just it 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 changes everything. Um, it changes everything, and I think we all have dealt with different challenges and everything that we do throughout the year. So you, you just you're thankful to have games and fans and work to be done. Um, but it it certainly was a just a whole different beast of trying to see what you see, what you want to see, some of the dynamics, especially, you know, just watching program off the monitor and, and then not being around the team. I mean, normally years past, you'd get to sit and practice and, and watch what was happening and see some of the interactions, whether it's coaches or players or what they're doing or, um, you know, be around the team traveling for road trips and the charter and just get a good feel for things um, that help you shed light and color on some, some of the insights. Um, of what you're seeing. So that has, has been mitigated this year, but hopefully but with the fans back though, that, you know, being a, calling games for Barclays in the first round with fans in the building, do, has that made a difference? Oh, it was, it was amazing. Cause uh, otherwise like in the past year, in some level creating this, you know, artificial energy uh, you're watching it and you love to say like, first it was this excitement of we're watching yeah. live actual games NBA players play basketball um but then it got to the point where like the energy you're trying to create it's like you're calling a scrimmage and you know in an empty gym um so when they came back yeah I mean it was it was crazy it was um fun and, and it almost made you forget like man did we really used to do this all the time like was this were these places always like this it's amazing can you put into words what it's like to watch Kevin Durant up close and per well up close we just talked about how you weren't up close and, and personal this season, but like, no, but it's close enough. What is it like watching him play basketball after an Achilles tear and seeing him like this? You forget about like, it, I think you need to constantly remind yourself what he's coming back from. Um, he is one of the most just extraordinary specimens of his size, his skill set, and how he's able to do whatever he wants on the floor and make it look so easy. It really is breathtaking. And I think um, when you see it live, there's no comparison to watching him. I was even thinking about last night, like the, the feelings and emotion is simply a basketball fan of watching some of this stuff. Um, to me, it, you, you can't even put it into words because it's like, it, he has this gracefulness of what he's doing with the ball in his hands Yet also there's like such a ferocity and such a like it's such a concept of you're imagining him like being at the park just wanting to to cook a guy because he loves the game and that's what he does. And so um, the balance of both those things, the beauty of a shot and the thing about him doing it as a seven footer, um, it's it's really 
special. And that's why I think for as much as like, we'll be on shows or have takes or make a prediction or this or that, like, I, I, there's so often that it's like, don't get lost in watching greatness and getting a chance to watch some of these individuals that um, have poured so much into their craft. And I think about that as, you know, just even thinking about watching a shooter and just how much like, it, it's not just because he's tall that he's able to shoot whatever near 60% or whatever he's shooting from like from the field and from through it's just this is what he does and he has put so much time into becoming this player um but Matt he's he's different like he is just a different different dude yeah and watching I mean Achilles is one thing but can we just have some empathy for what Joe Harris is going through with not being able to go to restaurants this season I mean, the fact that he's able to perform night in, night out when he's not able to go on the road to his favorite joints and like having his amazing meals, Michelin starred meals and like Joe Harris, like he's got to eat inside at his hotel room and get room service nine times out of 10 or whatever the team provides. Room service sucks, by the way. No one, you know, I hate when. Oh, really? I do. I am not a fan of room service. I, I always find the food to be not that good not quite to my temperature liking mm, this king over here amino acid this the king of of drafts yes draft king mm, yes temperature liking no i'm just like you know i i want i and and i don't like my room smelling like food afterward that's the other thing oh that's, that's a real I'll, I'll give you that i'll give you that don't you push the you you eat it and then you push the cart push out. It outside yeah but it still has it lingers it lingers you know it lingers in a way that when I eat at home, it doesn't linger. So I, I don't like room service. You don't have to like room service. I mean, that's a nice luxury to have a choice of whether you like it or don't like it. <laughs> oh, this Bentley. I don't like the way the seats in the Bentley feel on my... <laughs> I'm going to call it what it is. It's a fake luxury. <laughs> exactly. It's a fake luxury. It sounds very, ooh, room service, but it's... In reality, ladies and gentlemen, it's not that great. You're better off going downstairs to the hotel bar and eating alone. Maybe you don't want to leave the room. Maybe you don't. You, maybe all your adoring fans. I mean, <laughs> you may like you may like all your fans that mob you, but maybe some people don't like all that attention when they leave the room. So that's why they just choose to stay inside. Oh man! Yeah, Maze has a good point here in the chat. When you cook at home, your house smells like food. So what's the difference here? No. Yeah. Not my house. <laughs> it's the mansion. It's a means a means mansion. His his kitchen is on the other wing of the house. It's it's another. Yeah. Well, it's actually a, it's it's its own building, separate building out back. Sarah, you, you forget he has multiple kitchens in his ma- in his mansion. So oh, no, that's a, no, that's, that's a, one's just a sink with a little bit of a you know a cooktop. It's nothing serious. It's just a little. It's a kitchenette. Don't count that as a kitchen, Tom. True. Well, Sarah, I guess I did the intro in the beginning, kind of half ass. So I, I should probably say. Thank you for joining us, Sarah Kustak from from Yes Network. The fact of the matter is, is that we did not properly introduce you, and I'm sorry for having to do this at the at the very end. No, better off. I appreciate that. Little did I know we'd be talking about kitchenettes and, and hot peppers. So I would take skipping the intro for the good conversation. Next time we do an NBA pepper challenge, you are going to be on the short list of people that I'm going to call to make sure we get this done. You can handle the heat. Did we stop doing the pepper challenge? I thought the pepper challenge is everlasting or no? Well, now that I know the, the, whatever the measurements of the Scoville. hotness of the peppers are Scovilles, I don't know if I want to be part of your pepper challenge, unless it's for a good cause. If it's for a good cause, I'm in for anything. It's but for a great cause. If it's just for bragging rights, then. I'm I'm cool. It's for a great cause, but I, I'm just gonna say right now, 
Tom showed up. He's got the peppers in a very specially sealed package. So this is what me and Kate are going to be doing if the people raise enough money. I said, oh, wow, that's great. Um, I look at them and it looks, it looks almost like primal. They're dried Carolina Reapers, yes. But yeah. even the label, the label is like scrawled in blood. Like it's not even like a printed <laughs> label. I'm like, wow. So, so Tom says, yeah, you know, by the way, I bought these hot sauces with me. And like, this is just to give you an idea. And I want made out of this Carolina Reaper thing. So I was eating a pizza and I said, you know what? One, two, oh, three, no. yeah, Sarah, Sarah, don't, don't give him, don't give into this. He's, he's trying was, to, I mean, I don't know. Like, I'm not going to say it wasn't spicy. It wasn't, it was hot, but it wasn't like, Oh, I'm Tom Havistro. I have to throw up. Take me to a hospital. Read me bedtime stories. John Skipper. I, I did none of those things. I did you not did go to the hospital. Things. I did not tell the the C former CEO of ESPN and president of ESPN to read me bedtime stories. He was reading me the science of Scoville's and heat off the Wikipedia page i asked for none of that and dan is talking yesterday about what were you doing while you were while he was reading what were you doing i was resting oh he was really reading you oh my wait, this is while tom I- was prone prone on a cot no see dan was dan is exaggerating wow. what dan was saying on the show yesterday that my nervous system had shut down this is false i was walking around i was talking i was i was uh, I was eating like not, my nervous system didn't shut down. My problem here, Sarah, this is what happened. I imbibed the hottest pepper in the world on an empty stomach. I didn't eat a meal beforehand and I panicked right before I did it because I was like, this is going straight to the bottom and it's going to hit like a wrecking ball yeah. of wildfire. If I had kind of um, coated my stomach lining with like a meal, like yeah. a, a, a chicken parm or something like that, I feel like I would have been okay but yeah. because it hit boom, it came right back up 45 minutes later. If you can do habaneros in your salsa, you can do uh, a habanero. Just take a bite out of that. I don't know. You know what? Maybe move me from the short list to the long list. (laughs) You're a little nervous. You're getting a little nervous. Yeah, I am. Okay. Because the Reaper, the Reaper is 2 million Scoville and a habanero is like 300,000. So (sighs) it's about seven times hotter than a habanero. What's 1.7 million between friends though? Yes. I'll get you one from my third kitchen. <laughs> Amino acid. Yeah. Amino acid. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I so appreciate it. We'll do it again. Bob Lee of ESPN fame. Yeah. Ate a jalapeno. No. And his face immediately started showering. Oh. Just perspiring. He cursed. Oh. And he cursed. He goes, holy shit. Oh, no. <laughs> and then he rubbed his eyes. So we're like, no, don't touch your eyes. No, poor Bob. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. It was awesome.